0: In chapter 31 of the book of Exodus, we come to the end of Moses' time upon Mount Sinai. If you recall um, several chapters back, it was Moses who went up on the mountain to spend time with the Lord. He first, in the the beginning of this uh, covenant confirmation ceremony, they spent time together, Moses and Aaron and Joshua and some of the elders of Israel. And after a while of time there, the Lord said, Mo, why don't you come up and spend some time with me? And so he went up the mountain and he has been uh, on the mountain receiving, uh, just speaking with the Lord, spending time with the Lord and receiving a lot of what we've covered uh, in the past couple weeks, instructions for the tabernacle. And he has received um, the book of the covenant. He has uh, received uh, just this Insight for how God wants to govern his people through the laws of the book of the covenant with the civil law and the um, ceremonial law there and uh, as well as the Ten Commandments. And so we're, we're coming to the end of this time. Moses has received, uh, last week we looked at, uh, he received the um, tail end of instructions for the uh, tabernacle, We looked at the Bronze Basin last week, the uh, anointing oil, the uh, altar of incense, and now he's going to give, the Lord will give Moses some instruction for uh, who's to lead this project. And so we first look at this group of uh, artists that the Lord calls to lead his people, and then we turn to the Lord reiterating uh, the Sabbath. He's coming back to this again. And so uh, this morning we will kind of look a little bit at the artist, but a, a little bit more about kind of the uh, little uh, theology of art light. Like we're not going to go like crazy in depth, but we'll give us some guidelines for how we ought to think about uh, the art that God commissions. And then we'll look at the Sabbath again once more. We read first about these uh, two men who are called by God in uh, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, "See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a Holiab, the son." of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. Then we find this list of the things the Lord reiterating, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments, for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And so we find here in this uh, first portion of chapter 31 the name of the artists who will lead this project moses uh is trained in uh the egyptian methods and he grew up with an uh education in architecture and he grew up with this understanding but the lord has these two men who are called for this purpose specifically we find that that's one of the most important things as uh, God's people. Now, you might be saying, like, hey, I'm not an artist. Uh, I don't have skills in this manner. What what the Lord is saying here when he's calling these specific artists, these people that he's gifted, the, the word art there, it, it really means to um, to craft or to to work at something skillfully, to make something for a purpose that is not just practical. You know, so this would be something that you would do if you uh, made a card for somebody. You are working on a craft or a skill, a project. This would be, uh, this. it would qualify if you um, practiced in a sort of dance routine or you uh, sing. You are making something for a purpose that is other than just a completely practical tool. So this really applies to all god's people if you if you remember that god is the creator he's created all things and as god's people we are made in his image and so that means that we take on his character and his nature and so whether you realize it or not you are making art in some form you were you know to the to the smallest level maybe for you that is just you're picking your profile picture on facebook Maybe that's your, your thing that you're working on. If you have an Instagram, you count. You're an artist. You're selecting and crafting. It's, there's no practical reason to have that. However, uh, they, those things can be useful. And so we look here at these things that God is calling um, his people to. These similar things are, are applicable to us. The first thing that we want to realize is that all of God's people, he calls us to serve him with the gifts and abilities, the talents that he's given us, and these men are called by God. They're not just any men, but they are specifically set aside, and the Lord picks people who have some backing, some skills. We have the first man, Bezalel. He's this master craftsman, and then we've got Aholiab, who is like his number one assistant. He's the the second in command. Bezalel and Aholiab. Now, I want you to see here that these people are these men, they're not selected by Moses. They're not selected by other men. They are uh there there isn't a idea where the Lord's like, "Okay, well, let me I got this tabernacle thing I want to build and so I'm going to build a website and we're going to put it up and then the architectural firms can submit their plans for what they think this is going to be like and I want to really review your portfolio and I want to make sure that you're qualified to do this. That's not what happens. The Lord says, I got two guys in mind who are going to lead this project, Bezalel and Aholiab and he calls them. It's God who calls them. And he calls them by name. They're, they're not unseen. Maybe they've been honing their skills. They've been working on these things uh, for many years and people not knowing. And for you, like maybe you've got something that you're working on. Maybe the Lord has gifted you with something you know, that it's just like you're in the, in the quiet of your own home, in your own room. There's a specific hobby, something that you enjoy, something that you're working on that's just like a relaxing time for you. The Lord sees you. He knows what you're working on. And maybe that art is just for you and him and for the Lord to spend time, but maybe God will use that for others. Here, he calls these men to use their giftings to serve the Lord and to serve others. It is God who calls artists, these specific artists, to something great, something massive. This building that they would be working on is the most important building in the entire world. This is God's house, his dwelling place. But he didn't call them only to to let them try to accomplish this on their own. He equips them for their calling, right? How how, how is Moses going to go down and be like, okay, guys, you're going to build a tabernacle. And they're like, what in the heck is a tabernacle? It's not like they've ever built a tabernacle before with these very specific design ideas. So God equips his people to fulfill their calling. Bezalel, he was able to work in a wide variety of artistic media. He was, as we see here, a metal worker, a stone cutter, and a woodworker. Really? That dude is just flush with skills. I wish I had skills like that. And then we've got Aholiab here. We don't find the description in this chapter, in chapter 31, but he was also skilled in multiple uh, artistic um, paths. In Exodus 38, we read that he is an engraver, a designer, an embroiderer in purple and blue and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. So he was the guy who was like, when God was like, hey, we're going to make these curtains. He's like, I'm thinking of a holy because he's got these skills and I'm calling him to do this. We've got the man who is, th- these two men are able to work together to oversee God's people. Now, he they don't do this project by themselves. The, God calls them Uh, to find other men who he equips. Although these men were well-versed in these arts, although they were skillful, what qualified them to work on the tabernacle was the filling of the Spirit of God. This is really what qualifies them to work on it. It's not that they were the best or the most qualified. It's that God called them, he equipped them with the skills, and he gives them the filling of the Holy Spirit. Look back there at this description. He says in verse 3, I filled him with the Spirit of God. He, These men are going to do God's work, but they are going to do it with the empowering, the ability that the Holy Spirit gives to them. They're not going to go out there on their own. They're not going to go out there unprepared because they are going with the leading and guiding of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit escorts them into these projects. Now, if, 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 uh, if you've ever sat down to do a kind of an artistic project before, like, you either kind of fall into one or two camps. You're either like the, there's tons of materials and I'm going to work on stuff and I'm just going like, to go crazy and make it. I'm not really super worried about making it perfect. I'm just, it's going to be my, the journey is a part of it. Or you fall into like the perfectionist camp and it's like if there's one stray line and it's like you really have to think it out. I'm in the perfectionist camp. I'm like really, yeah, I'm in the perfectionist camp. I like really want to like download the 3D model and like build the wireframe and like think about it and get other people's opinion and come back to it. Uh, this would not be a good project for me to work on. Without the leading of the Holy Spirit, because I would just see a pile of materials and be like, (gasps) I'm paralyzed. I can't do anything. The Lord's called me to this, but I don't know what to do. It's only by the Holy Spirit leading them that they're able to accomplish this. They're given a specific commission. They're given this huge commission. As an artist, what you always want and to dream for is to somebody who just is bankrolling and has an important project to see your art and be like, you know what, I've got this thing I really want you to make. I've just been dreaming about this building. I've, really, I've, I've got this huge wall in my house that's been, uh, it's been waiting for like a masterpiece of a painting. Would you come and just paint something for that? Like That is the, the ultimate thing that an artist is hoping for. Oh, would you like to show your work in this museum? But here, these men are just, they're they're not doing anything. They're camping in the desert. And they're serving their fellow man with the skills that God has given them. And God's like, hey, I got a commission for you. I want you guys to work on this huge project. He calls them. They didn't have experience building the tabernacle, but they had the Holy Spirit. And they would be able to accomplish all that God had called them to with the power of the Holy Spirit. And for us, the Lord's going to call us into some crazy things that we're like, I don't really know if I can handle this. But he tells us, I've given you my Holy Spirit. You're going to be able to go out to represent me well, to be faithful, because I'm empowering you to do just that. I love this. It's so wise of the Lord to gift them the Holy Spirit. It's so smart. The Holy Spirit, who is God, who was present at creation. He's like, I oversaw all the creation so I can handle like this little tabernacle project. Here you guys go. Let's build something. God will provide for his future plans. He doesn't just tell Moses like, "Hey, we're going to build a tabernacle." He's like, "Here's all the materials. Here's how you're going to acquire the materials. Here are the people who are going to build it." So know this, as God is calling you to take steps of faith, as he's showing you guys different things in your life that he's calling you to, whether that's in your career, whether that's uh, in in, uh, your academic career, whether that is in the realm of family or, or relationships, as he's calling you to take these steps of faith, he's going to provide for those things. So we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be afraid. He's going to give us what we need to accomplish His will. But too many times we go in thinking like, well, here's my plan, Lord, and I've come up with this sweet idea, and so here's all the things that I need, so you better like deliver these things. Also, I need a way to accomplish it. Also, I don't want it to be hard. So, like, there there you go. Make something happen now, God. But this works together with God's will. God provides for His will, not for our will, because too often we, our will is just, Wrong. <laughs> we just want the wrong thing, and and too often we're selling ourselves short. You know, one of the one of the things that I really like about uh, going trick or treating on Halloween with, with the kids, and I remember this from being young, is when you go and uh, there you go to the houses, and uh, you know you're you're going through the neighborhood, and every once in a while you you find. The, uh, the houses that give out the full-size candy bars, right? Like, they're not messing around. They're going big. You know, and you're going to get around with the kids, and it's like, oh, yeah, oh, fun-size, great. Like, the little nibbler, awesome. And, and then you come to the, and we've got our eyes set on, like, the full-size. It's like, okay, we gotta, I'm gonna, I'm fine, I'm gonna settle for the little, like, fun-size, but the full-size is what I want. That's what I'm after. You're rushing house to house. And then there is that time where we're tempted to settle for that. But really, what's happening is there's another size. The king size. The king size goes beyond the regular size. It's like, right? The king size is meant for the king. And so... Too often when we're seeking out things that we want, we're looking for like the full size. And we're like, well, we're currently dealing with the little nibblers and like the fun size. It's like, fine, like I'll, everybody gets the fun size, whatever, not special. I want the full size, ah, you know. We're all getting mad and tired as we drag along. And the Lord's like, well, if you just listen to me, I would show you where the king size is. Because I'm the king and I know where the king size is. I can bring the king size to you. But we're like pouting over the fact that like we didn't get, you know, the full size. We settle too short too often. And so we have to trust in God's calling, his empowering, his provision. In life, God calls us into specific fields. Some of these things are career choices, but one of the things that I've seen God provide for supernaturally, just absolutely in miraculous ways, is passing into the role of becoming a husband. This, today, is our 12th anniversary. This morning started. is our 12th anniversary. We got married when I was, I turned 20, like 20 days before our wedding. And Corinne was 19. Right? All the books say, that's a bad idea. (laughs) All the podcasts, all the talk shows say, that's a terrible idea. That's what they all say. But there is a supernatural ability that God gifts his people with. When he calls them into something i remember so vividly so specifically standing there on the little stage with uh my friend who was marrying us he's a pastor it's not just like a random like we didn't get like the the internet ordination (laughs) anyways he was doing it and he was he was saying these things he was saying he, he he said specifically like david the lord has equipped you In a supernatural way to love and serve and meet the needs of Corinne in a way that nobody else on this earth can. And that doesn't come through reading a book. It doesn't come through reading a book. It comes through entering into that covenant relationship with God and my wife, and then the Lord providing what I need in that moment. I'm not gonna get that from a book. And the Lord's a part of a covenant relationship. He knows what we need. And so he hand delivers and tailors those, those things to us. I'm not going to go and find like a specific book. Same thing when you become a father. There, you can read all the books. You're never going to be ready. There's never a right time to get married or re- never a right time to start a family. The right time is when like you seek the Lord and it's like, it's on, game on, let's go. That's it. Can't have, like, a, there's, You're never going to have enough money in the bank. You're never going to like pay off Enough of your student loans. It's never going to happen. You're just never going to be at the right place. There's not a right time. It's just seeking the Lord and being obedient to Him. It's going to call us to take these steps. We've got to be obedient. And so God empowers His people to serve Him. We have to serve Him with the filling of the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. It's going to turn into a mess. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we end up doing what we want. And that's where things start to go bad. We start doing things on our own. Instead of seeking the Lord's will, we seek our own. Now, I want you guys to notice one more thing here. I guess this is a lot more things. Let's be realistic. A lot more things here about the artistic endeavors of uh, God's calling upon these people. God did not just equip them with muscle memory and uh, ability to create this art, the tabernacle, to work in the woodworking to create these fine curtains and linens and to work in metalwork. He didn't just give them the muscle memory. He gave them more than that. Look what it says. With ability and intelligence and knowledge. So what this it, this wasn't just an art free for all. Like, "Hey guys, here's a bunch of stuff. I know you got skills. Like, make that thing you've always been dreaming of and you've been waiting for" You know, a financial benefactor to come along and be like, hey, here's just a bunch of money. You can just do whatever you want with. This isn't an art free for all. So, this means our art has to be directed. The art that they worked toward had standards. So, look at three quick uh, artistic standards that we want to govern our art as God's people. Three quick artistic standards goodness, truth, and beauty. Goodness, truth, and beauty. Goodness, I believe, can be, uh, I was going to kind of talk a little bit about that, but I think it can be summed up real succinctly in the book of Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Philippian church about having joy, and being protected by joy. And what he tells them, one of the ways is to set their minds on who Christ is and to be, uh, to be found in a place where they are to be like him, to be content in all things. But he, in chapter 4, he uh, describes what they should do, a prescription. He uh, describes it this way. Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. I think this sums up the, the goodness standard very well. The motive from which we do things should be rooted in goodness. It should be rooted in something that is honorable, just, Pure, commendable. Now, we're not just talking about the aesthetics of it, because you may or may not be a really great painter or a great artist, but you might be like putting an effort out there. That's okay. We're not talking about the aesthetics. It doesn't have to be perfect, and you don't have to be perfectly skillful, but the motive behind what we're creating, the things that we're doing, the songs that we're writing, the way that we're moving our body in dance or rhythm, the way that we're uh, performing these things, they should fall under these categories. The second thing is that it should be true. Art must be true. It has to portray things the way they really are. Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have, like, a, you can't have, like, allegory in your art. It's not, it's not, we're not saying no symbolism because the tabernacle is full of symbolism, Right? It's, that's the whole thing. The whole thing about the tabernacle is there. it's hugely symbolic. It's about God's goodness, but it's massively symbolic. It's everything, every single thing. The altar has a specific meaning. It has, uh, it's speaking something. So it has to be true. It has to portray things the way they really are. And the tabernacle does that, both through the way that God, uh, man approaches God and de- declaring who God is. And so, uh, each part of the tabernacle says something about God. The ark represents his throne. Uh, the base and the altar, the veil connected with his holiness. So, in our ark, the things that we're doing, there has to be uh, truth connected to it. Now, it doesn't have to be only purely truth about God. It can be truth about the state of, uh, of things in the world. I, have, I, I think about the recent... Uh, racial issues in our country and there have been many helpful artistic pieces on this speaking about the truth of the matter that there is an issue the way that things have been people have been treated in unjustly it can be simply that level of truth speaking forth a truth it can be both good and true it can't just be false, f- fake, right? So this is like the Holy Spirit shout out to like everyone who's faking it on Instagram, you know, making yourself like look super sweet. You're like laying on your bed with like all the hundreds around you. And but like you're eating like top ramen, like in the kitchen and you're not, you're not Instagramming that. <laughs> like that doesn't fly. That does not fall under the category of truth. Be real, be true, speak truth, and use the art, the talents, the giftings that God has given you to declare truth. Um, but there's there's a, a kind of last connection to this: beauty. To God, beauty is important. The form of the art is just as important as the function. Now, a lot of times when we have art that is truthful. It's full of declarative statements about truth. It's making a specific um, declaration about the state of society or culture. It's, It's being used in some allegorical way. A lot of times that art is truthful, but it's not beautiful. Here's what I mean. In the midst of the art that we are creating for God's glory... It can be truthful. This doesn't mean, uh, you know, it it can say these, these things that are realities in the world that are absolutely horrendous and ugly. But in the midst of that art, in the midst of that, God's people should be able to put forth redemption in the middle of brokenness. So if the art that you create and you're working towards, has an ugly truth to it, if it's dark, there should also be a connection to redemption. Now, that doesn't mean like, okay, only the art that we make has to be like all like smiley faces and trees and flowers everywhere. There can be brokenness in the world, but there can be redemption in that art. Maybe for for you, this is a series of blog posts that you're writing about, like, your testimony, about, like, how gnarly your past life was. But you're writing from the perspective that God has rescued and saved me. I'm a new creation now. The point is not to glorify the old, but to lift up Christ. Maybe the paintings that you're working on are intense. They're speaking forth a real truth. But you're declaring that's what God has rescued me from. So your your artwork doesn't have to be all like happy and evangelistic and, you know, like we're not looking for like cheesy, lame stuff. But we are looking for the story of redemption. After all, that is the message of the church. We are the only group of people in the world that branding companies would totally look down upon because our logo, our symbol, is an instrument of execution. We have a cross. We put that forward as our main piece of art that we all look to, that we share, the cross. The most horrible, ugly place of execution where the most unjust execution in all of history happened, that's, that's our main piece of art that we're celebrating. We see this both in just the, the shape, the form of the cross. We see this in sculptures. We see this in paintings all throughout history. But the beauty of the cross is that at that cross, in that work that Christ uh, participated in, that he gave his life for us, we have life. He was killed in an unjust manner. He got something that he did not deserve. He was punished in a horrific way, but we got life. There's beauty in the midst of a story of brokenness. So goodness, truth, beauty. And then here's kind of just a, a like random not random but a helpful a helpful guideline for artistic standard the things you're working on don't violate the 10 commandments in your artwork right don't make idols uh, don't don't glorify like some of the things that are happening don't make pictures about like hey like i hate my parents blah 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 you know like honor your mother and father commandment number 5 like maybe don't make like the i hate my parent painting that's probably not a good idea So, don't violate the Ten Commandments in your creation of your art. Now, the last thing that we want to remark about art here is it is for God's glory. It is for God's glory, not for our own. It's super easy, super easy to fall into idolatry when you are making art, when you are working in any sort of creative fashion, it's super easy to fall into idolatry. Because you talk to any anybody who's ever done art and they're like, Well, what does that mean? It's like, well, I'm kind of like expressing like how I how I feel about this and about this specific topic. So In the minds of most people, art is self-expression, but Christianity is self-denial. So you're expressing yourself, but Christ says we should deny ourselves. So we have to marry those two things together. Expressing yourself, but denying yourself. It's super easy to fall into idolatry. When art, for art's sake, becomes the goal, then art is the idol. And then when you happen to be good at art and people are like, oh, wow, you're like awesome and amazing, then you make yourself an idol and people are like worshiping you and how great you are. Selfish ambition, personal gain can creep up so easily. So make art, but make it to the glory of God. It's it's, it's too easy. I was reading one story of... Uh, the painter uh, Matisse. He completed these masterful paintings in uh, the Chapel of the Rosary at Venice, and in the midst of this, kind of completing these things, <clears throat> it's recorded that he he stepped back and he proclaimed, "I did it for myself. <laughs> I did it for myself." And one of the Catholic sisters was in the area and she overheard him, I like saying that. And she said, but, but you told me that you were doing it for God. And he just replied, yes, but I am God. That is the level that art can be taken to. The art was in God's house for to be experienced and enjoyed by God's people. <clears throat> but this man found his ultimate identity in this commission, in his work. That is where it will go quickly. And so everything that we create should be for God's glory. Now, this doesn't mean that we only create Christian things, uh, but it means that everything that we do, we do wholeheartedly unto the Lord. We work with all that he's given us for him. So whatever field that you're in, whatever thing you're working on, the way that you make God-glorifying art is do it well, do it faithfully, check your heart. That's it. If you're going to write a blog, you're going to write a Facebook post, you're going to post an Instagram, God's glory. Do it unto the Lord. Now, we transition in verse 12 and we look at the Sabbath. Stick with me and we'll move, we'll move quickly through this. The Lord said to Moses... You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, "Above all, you shall keep My Sabbaths, for this is a sign between Me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you." So, why in the world are we talking about the Sabbath again? Because, like, we've talked about the Sabbath a ton already. Uh, what's being, what's happening here is the Lord is returning to the Sabbath because it's a big deal. <laughs> that's just really what it is he's returning to it again because it's a big deal it's mentioned five times at least five times in the book of exodus and the sabbath by this repeated mentioning of it it tells us that this is a central issue it's not a perimeter issue it's not something that's like hey like don't really think too much about that it's not a secondary issue it's a uh it's a central issue to the lord now we find the Sabbath is codified in the Ten Commandments. It's commandment number four. But it's introduced before the Ten Commandments are even talked about. In Exodus chapter 16, the Lord tells them like, hey, you're going to start having these Sabbaths, these times of rest. And, uh when we looked at the Sabbath uh, and we've looked at the book of the covenant, we introduced the three types of law, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. And so we find uh, it codified in the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And this includes the Sabbath, so we practice the Sabbath still today. It's in the moral law, so it's something we practice. Now, if there's one commandment of the Ten, besides the first one, besides the first one, because, you know, if you break one of the others, you've broken the first one. If there's one of the commandments that we're breaking consistently, I bet you it's number four. Keeping the Sabbath, because like the children of Israel, we probably tend to have the same thought: like, "Eh, that one's probably not that big of a deal anymore. Like stealing, killing people, yeah, I can see how that's like a problem. Uh, You know, coveting, lying, I I can see how those are bad things. But like when it comes to like Sabbath, and it's like, oh, that's not really that big of a deal. it's easy for us to overlook this one i i uh i felt the conviction of the lord this morning as i was uh driving here and i was coming up the street and there was one of the uh shiny bright white amazon trucks it had like the little a on the side and the guy was delivering a package and it was like you know Amazon has, like, these special Sunday deliveries where they don't get delivered by UPS. Like, I just, I, I, like, drove right next to him, and, like, I, for a second, I was, like, I just need to roll down my window and be, like, you are a true American hero, delivering packages, delivering my Amazon packages on Sunday. And I was, like, well, maybe he's not a believer. I was, I was just, like, oh, there I go again, trying to get people to work on the Sabbath for me deliver my packages getting all sucked in it's so easy so this commandment here that we find why god is repeating this again now is put here to remind bezalel and aholiab and the rest of israel's artists who are going to be a part of the tabernacle uh, construction that they do not have to work on the tabernacle at all times they don't have to work on it at all times These men were commissioned by the Lord to create the most important building in the world. And God says, hey, guess what? You guys aren't exempt from the Sabbath. They have the most important job directly from the Lord calling them to do this. And it's on God's house where he's going to spend time with his people and he's going to be worshipped. And he's like, you guys are good. You don't need to work on the Sabbath. You have to participate with everybody else. So surely, surely, if there were going to be people with a just excuse for not taking part in the Sabbath, it would be these guys. But they don't get off the hook. And so if these men were not exempt from the Sabbath, they serve as a reminder to you and I that our to-do list, our work, our service to the Lord is not an excuse. Because we're not working on the tabernacle. We don't have an excuse either. Say, oh, Lord, I don't got time for you. I got to do this. I'm not going to come aside and, and rest with you. We cannot use them. This as our, our to-do list, our things that we have to do as an excuse. Our reasoning is not going to be better than theirs. They're directly called by God to do something important for him. Now, we're told the Sabbath here is given kind of a little bit of a new purpose. And this is the first... Uh, we've talked about the purpose before, but here's where it's kind of instituted. Uh, we're told, you shall keep the Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. So the Sabbath is designed to grow the people in their relationship with the Lord. It's, it's a sign, it's a way for them to meet with the Lord and that they might become like him, to be sanctified, to be set apart. And so by spending time in prayer, by spending time in worship and reading the the Word of God, uh, we would become like God. This is how you get to know the Lord and spending time with Him. Now we're told in verse 14, the Lord continues, He says, "...you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people." Six days you shall uh, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. So we, in our culture today, uh, somehow our work week is scheduled to be a little bit easier than their work week because they work six days a week. And, you know, we have, like, a five-day work week, and then we have, like, a Saturday and Sunday. Some of us work more, but that's generally how they had it. A lot of us work, like, seven days a week. We just try to, like, spread it out, work a little bit each day. But here, they were all told that they need to cease from work. That's what Sabbath means, cease from work. Now, this is speaking to... Regular work, what you would regularly do, tending to your farm, to your animals, anything that would be a regular considered a regular part of your daily routine during the week is to be off limits on the Sabbath. Off limits. One commentator, Michael Hortney, said this, this day did not require cessation from activity, so it's not just like you can't do anything, but cessation from a particular kind of activity. Namely, the six-day labor that is intrinsically good, but has suffered the curse after the fall. So it was not business as usual for the people of God. And it wasn't a day for them just to do their own thing, like, oh, just do whatever you want that day, just like a day where like, you don't have to work. It's not up to you to just relax and do whatever you feel like doing. There are, the, the Lord says, you should cease from work. Now, there's a steep penalty that it's attached to this. Uh, one other commentator summarizes best. I'm just going to read you uh, what he says here. Peter ends, he writes Who, uh, the, this penalty this death penalty seems harsh right? You work you get killed. Because that seems pretty gnarly. Uh, this penalty seems harsh but not when we realize what the Sabbath was intended to do. By not keeping the Sabbath the Israelite was showing that he or she was not interested in knowing God. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion. It was a repudiation of the covenant. It was a way of saying to God, my relationship with you isn't important to me. You're not worth the time it would take to get to know you. So this is why the penalty is so harsh. It's rooted in this uh, defiant rebellion. It's rooted in this complete rejection of the covenant and belonging to God. And God is trying to separate his people out from the other nations. He's trying to make them his own special people, to have them in contrast to the other nations. Verse 16, we read, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So they are to continue in this uh, and observing the Sabbath. It's a part of the covenant. It's a sign. And so here, uh, so, so they are to continue to keep this. The Lord says this isn't something, you, uh, an optional idea. You have to obey. Now, here's why we keep the Sabbath. Why we keep the Sabbath. i give you four reasons. Four reasons why we keep it. First one we find in verse 17. It's rooted in creation. It's a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So one of the reasons that we keep it is it's rooted in God's created order. This is before sin entered into the world. It's something that he established, a rhythm that he established, and being made in the image of God, we work for six days and we rest on the seventh. The second reason why we keep the sabbath is it's in the ten commandments it's a part of the moral law now we see that the uh, the moral law is a part of the law that we still keep the uh, ceremonial law which points to christ is something that we don't do not keep because christ has come and the civil law is designed to govern israel and we're not israel so we don't keep the civil law but this is a part of the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are still in, uh, applied to today. The third reason why we keep it is that the early church practiced the Sabbath. The early church loved meeting together on the Sabbath, although uh, by then they changed it to Sunday instead of Saturday. They switched it around. Now, for them, they did, I mean, essentially they didn't really change it. The Lord changed it because this is rooted in the resurrection of Christ. In the, in their minds, they said, the Sabbath is, we understand that it's truly pointing to Christ. We understand that he is our true rest. And so therefore, we rest on the day that Jesus resurrected. We celebrate him on Sunday. And so they, in the New Testament, they changed to calling it the Lord's Day uh, instead of the Sabbath. Now, the fourth reason, and this is probably the most important reason why we keep the Sabbath is because Jesus affirms it. Jesus affirms it. One would think that Jesus rolls up on the scene and uh, knowing that he is the true Sabbath, he is the true rest, he rolls up there and he's talking with the Pharisees and uh, the scribes and everybody and he's like look you guys are doing it all wrong like that's not you don't really need to do that because like i'm the true sabbath like we're done with that don't worry about it that's not what happened in mark chapter 2 uh there is a, an instance recorded and there's multiple instances here but here's just one of them as on the sabbath they're going through the grain fields and jesus's disciples are picking some of the grain and they're eating this and essentially like you know there's the little grain that's inside of the little chaff husk and so they're taking it out and so they get they get like dinged for like reaping and harvesting because like they basically ate like a sunflower seed uh and so they're going through and the pharisees are like all angry they're like why are you not doing why are you doing what is not lawful on the sabbath that's what that's what they asked jesus why why are your disciples doing this and at that point, Jesus doesn't say, Well, you guys, don't you really know that, that 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 it's not a big deal? He doesn't do that. He affirms the Sabbath. He says, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? And then he talks about the tabernacle and, and, and how he went into the house of God when he was hungry and he ate the bread that was only for the priests. He's like, he went in and he had this bread. It wasn't lawful, but only for them, for the priests to eat. And then he tells them this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He's like, you guys got it all backwards. This is designed for you. He says, guys, I'm not rejecting the Sabbath. I'm all about the Sabbath. In fact, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm so about it. I'm more about the Sabbath than you guys are, is what he comes up back with. Jesus spent time uh, worshiping in the synagogues on the Sabbath. He taught on the Sabbath. And so it's his demonstration that he is Lord over the Sabbath. Although he is our true Sabbath rest, he says that this isn't something that has passed away, that we continue to celebrate the Sabbath and to practice the Sabbath, to rest in him. So it's Jesus who ultimately affirms the Sabbath, calling himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, uh, lastly here, we read, well, let's get to one thing, the penalties. Why don't we get killed then <laughs> when, we, when we're breaking the Sabbath? Because we've got to deal with that kind of awkward situation. The Sabbath is ultimately rooted in the moral law, but the, for the children of Israel, there were aspects of the Sabbath that were connected to the ceremonial and civil laws. And so the penalties are connected to uh, being a part of that covenant people, and so they're connected to the ceremonial law. And so because Christ has come... Because Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law, because Christ has created a new covenant that we are under, the penalty is no longer applicable for the New Testament people, for post-cross. Christ is our ultimate Sabbath rest, and so we don't have to face that penalty. Now, when we ignore the Sabbath... what we're essentially doing is we're saying that we're trusting in our own strength rather than the strength of the Lord. Because by ceasing to work on the Sabbath, what we're doing is we're letting go of control. We're saying like, hey, it's okay if other people are going to outwork us on this day. Let them. It's okay that people are going to go into into the office and I'm not going to go into the office on that day. It's okay that they're going to schedule a meeting on that day and I'm going to say, like, I'm unavailable for the meeting. Because we're letting go of control and we're putting the control back in the Lord's hands. We're telling the Lord, you're more important than our tasks, than our titles, our opportunities. Because isn't it the Lord who gives us those opportunities? Isn't it the Lord who uh, ordains that we go into those Jobs and careers, those spheres of influence that he has allowed us to be in. So we don't want to place ourselves in the position of God. We finish in verse eighteen. He gave to uh, He gave to Moses when he finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. So Moses had been up on this mountain for forty days, forty nights. God gives him the instructions for the tabernacle, book of the covenant. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. These are written on two stone tablets. And so, well, one of the things that I really like about this is it's not like today. You know, it's like, oh, we wrote it in a Word document where someone could be like, replace. Like, I don't really like that one. God wrote this in stone. It's so hardcore. I love it. It's like, you can't erase this. But it also tells us it's written with the very finger of God. It's not that he's saying that, that God had like this really crazy long finger that like reached down and like lasered it in and like super lightning or whatever, however you're envisioning it in your head. What he's saying here is the full weight of divine authority is built into these laws. They are handed down by God, given by God, engraved in stone, and they are unchangeable by man. He wants us to feel the intensity of this law. They come with the seriousness of knowing who God is, his holiness, his character. As we look at both the commission of the artists to serve God but then the call to rest in God. It reminds us of God's faithfulness. It reminds us of his character. One of the things that it does for us is it, it, uh, the Sabbath is just so um, helpful when we think about it um, more than just like, you know, a day off. Don't think about it as like a day off. Like throw that out the window of your mind. Sabbath is not a day off. A day of rest. When We think about the Sabbath, we look at the Sabbath, it calls back all the way to creation. It echoes of the garden we, we see in the Sabbath. We look back at the Exodus where it's introduced multiple times. We look back to the resurrection. We see Christ alive and people celebrating the Lord's day. But we also look forward to our ultimate eternal rest. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verse 9, we read this. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. I love that. There remains a rest for the people of God. We will have this ultimate rest. We don't have to worry about striving, about doing things, trying to create our identity in any way, shape, or form because we've ultimately rested in the works that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And so when you come to consider the rest of your day today, the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, Ask him, "What do you want to do on your day, Lord?" Because I find myself thinking like, "What do I want to do on your day, Lord? It's not my day, it's your day, Lord. What do you want to do on your day?" Let's ask him together, He's so faithful to show us what he wants to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for your um, Sabbath design. We're so thankful for the artistic um, guidelines that you've put in place. We're so thankful that you've shown us how we can know you more and enjoy you through time of prayer, reading of your word. And Lord, we want to celebrate um, that true rest that you give us this morning. We want to cease from work. We want to rest in you, trusting in your ultimate work upon that cross, your death, your resurrection. And so, Lord, be glorified in your church as we lift our voices and our hands to you now. We love you, Jesus. Amen.